Last time I lectured under the uh, illusion that all you had been assigned for I, I really should get in the habit of looking at the syllabus that all you all you had been assigned for Thursday's lecture was the saussure. Uh, lo and behold, I did take a glance at the syllabus over the weekend and realized that you'd also been assigned to Levi Strauss. Uh, so we have a little bit of ground to cover today. I think we can do it. Uh, I think I want to reserve. Um, something like a critique of structuralism for the beginning of Thursday's lecture because it segues very nicely into what we'll have to say about Derrida. I already promised that somehow or another the critique of structuralism just was deconstruction, uh, and I hope to be able to demonstrate that on Thursday. But I do want to get up to the point of um, launching a critique of structuralism on two or three uh, grounds, uh, and so. I hope to be able to move along fairly quickly today. Uh, now, uh, another thing that got left out, even given the proviso that it was only about Saussure on Thursday, uh, was an adequate account of the relationship between synchrony and diachrony uh, and the pivotal importance of this concept for uh, not only for semiotics but for its aftermath in structuralism and also for its relation to the Russian formalists. Because you remember, that in talking about function, the formalists who began, who undertook to think about literary history and the problems of literary historiography were very much engaged um, in the notion that a function in a given text could be understood in two different ways. There was the sin function, which was the relationship between that function and all the other functions in the text. In other words, viewed as an aspect of that text. But there was also of the same function its auto-function, which is the way in which it persists and recurs throughout the history of literature, sometimes as the dominant, sometimes latent or recessive, but always in one form or another there. Now, in Saussurian linguistics, the relationship between synchrony and diachrony is very much the same. To consider language in toto is to consider it at a given moment synchronically. That is to say, you don't think of language as a system if at the same time you're thinking of it unfolding historically. Now, Jakobson, you will notice, introduces an element of time into the synchronic analysis of a semiotic system by saying that you've got to take account both of archaic and innovative features. But nevertheless, they are simply flagged as archaic or innovative and not understood as changing in time as long as they are read or analyzed synchronically. But at the same token, a system does change through time. A semiotic system, language, the history of literature, the history of poetics, whatever it might be, changes through time. And to analyze that change through time, you think of it diachronically. Now, Saussure argues that the relationship among the parts of something viewed synchronically, a semiotic system, let's say, are not necessary in the sense they might be any number of other relationships 
but they are nevertheless fixed. That is to say, they're what's there. They can't be other than what they are. Whereas through time, studying a semiotic system or studying language or whatever it might be, change takes place and it's necessary. You're looking back on it and it simply did happen. <laughs> and so <laughs> change is determinate in some sense. But at the same time, it's not regular. This, by the way, is a challenge to certain ideas in traditional linguistics, like, for example, the one you probably all know, the great vowel shift. Um, the, a structuralist view of language has to argue that the great, great vowel shift in which every vowel sound goes up a notch uh, in the some mysterious period between the medieval and the early modern, uh, that this only has the appearance of regularity, uh, but that it is actually uh, a diachronic phenomenon that can't be understood uh, in terms of regularity. So the relationship between synchronic and diachronic is of that kind. Now, matters are complicated a little bit. On those occasions in your reading, when people are talking about the way in which a mass of material, a system of language or other semiotic system, let's say, is inferred from existing data. In other words, the way in which I infer language, long, from sentences, parole, from a sentence, parole. Uh, I'm actually concealing from you that, in fact, Saussure uses a third term, langage, to talk about the sum of all sentences. We won't get into that. Uh, the way in which language is inferred from parole. Now language, in other words, is viewed as something in space. That is to say, or as Levi-Strauss calls it, a revertible time, meaning you can go backward and forward within it, but the temporal unfolding is not the important thing about it. So in space. Whereas parole, speech, unfolds in time. So that parole, because it is temporal, because any speech any of us makes is, in a certain sense, historical. <laughs> the beginning of the sentence is earlier in history than the end of the sentence. For that reason, there's a relationship between diachrony and the unfolding of parole or of a sentence or of an utterance, um, which is uh, parallel, though at the same time admittedly confusing. One doesn't really want to talk about a sentence as diachronic, but at the same time it does exist on that horizontal axis in which things in a combinatory way unfold in time. All right, so, so much then uh, for synchrony and diachrony, something we can't get away from. It's, 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 it's in a way the central fact of structuralism, uh, but which I don't think I did adequate justi justice to at the end of the last lecture. All right, now structuralism. There was an incredible aura about structuralism in the 1960s. It crashed on the shores of the United States, coming in from France, uh, in a way that stunned, amazed, transformed people's lives. Uh, people uh, like Kant reading Hume 
woke up from their dogmatic slumbers, or, they, or at least that they felt that that's what they were doing when encountering structuralism. Uh, and I mean, to me, it happened when I was a graduate student at Harvard, and absolutely nobody else was paying any attention to it at all. At Yale and Johns Hopkins and Cornell and some other people, they were paying attention to it. But at Harvard, I was initiated to structuralism by a bright undergraduate who seemed to be the only <laughs> the only person in Cambridge who knew anything about structuralism, and boy, did he know about structuralism, uh, and got me up to speed as quickly as as he could. But it was a phenomenon. Uh, that was transformative intellectually for people uh, in the academic and beyond the academic world uh, all over the country. And of course, it led to, in all sorts of ways, to most of what's been going on in theory ever since. The amazing thing about it is that as a flourishing and undisputed French contribution to literary theory, it lasted two years. Uh, because in 1966, at a famous conference, Jacques Derrida, whom we'll be reading uh, on Thursday, blew it out of the water. Um, but at the same time, um, and I'll come back to that, uh, at the same time, that is, uh, I mean, to say that it really only lasted two years simply isn't fair. The lasting contribution of structuralism, uh, as it's indebted to semiotics but on its own terms at well, um, is something one still feels and senses uh, throughout literary theory. And the concrete contributions, um, not all uh, between 1964 when the first structuralist texts were translated in this country in 1966 when the conference in Baltimore uh, took place, uh, but the lasting concrete contributions are also terribly important. There's a wonderful book called Enracine by Roland Barthes. Those of you interested in French neoclassical theater cannot imagine uh, if you haven't read it already, recent, reading a more bracing book. There is uh, an essay on a sonnet of Baudelaire, Les Chats, The Cats, uh, by written conjointly by Levi-Strauss and Jakobsen, uh, an extraordinary performance which was the model of a good deal else that was done in the Academy during that period. The anthropologist Edmund Leach, Leach wrote a structuralist analysis of Genesis in the Bible. And indeed, it's no accident that he writes about Genesis, as I will indicate in a minute and then subsequently. Um, and, uh, and in addition to all of that, probably the most lasting and rich contributions of the structuralists were in the field uh, that we know as narratology. We'll be taking a look at that when we read uh, Peter Brooks's text in, in conjunction with Freud a couple of weeks from now. But in the meantime, uh, the key text in narratology, again by Roland Barthes, uh, a long, long essay called The Structural Analysis of Narrative, in which he approaches a, a James Bond novel as a system of binary pairs uh, and, uh, and, and, un and, 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 and unpacks a deep structure uh, in the novel uh, as a result of this, of, of this, of this binary analysis. Uh, important books by Tsvetan Todorov, uh, crucial among them, uh, The Grammar of the Decameron, uh, and then a great deal of work uh, published in a series of books called Figure by Gérard Jeannette, whom you will find quoted uh, repeatedly in the work of Paul Demand that you'll be reading for, uh, for next uh, Tuesday. Uh, and all of this work uh, and a great deal else in the theory of narrative, narratology, uh, is directly indebted to or, or is actually an aspect of structuralist thought. 
Now, I promised that I would talk a little bit about the relationship between formalism and semiotics as it clarifies itself in the work of uh, writers like Levi-Strauss and, in particular, Jakobsen. Structuralism takes from, as you can see from Jakobsen's analysis, uh, takes from formalism the idea of function. Uh, Jakobsen uh, is originally, of course, himself uh, a member of the school of Russian formalists, uh, eventually emigrates to Prague where he is in a circle of people who are already calling themselves structuralists, moves from there to Paris and then to the United States. Uh, and so Jakobsen, of course, is the one figure who definitely uh, harkens back to both worlds, having been a formalist, having become a structuralist, one can see the amalgam of these two uh, of these two sets of ideas in his in his work. Uh, from, formal from, uh, from formalism, then you get the idea of function and the relationship between sin function and auto function, which becomes the relationship between synchrony and diachrony. From semiotics, you get the idea of negative knowledge, that is to say, the, in Levi-Strauss's analysis of the Oedipus myth, for example, the notion that there's no true version, there's no originary version, there's no sort of positive version of the myth of which everything else is a version. You simply know what you know as it is differentiated from the other things that you know. This, one of the essential premises of semiotics uh, which is essential at the same time uh, in structuralism. Now, unlike – because here's where structuralism can be understood as an entity in itself – unlike formalism, structuralism has an ambition with respect to the object, to the nature of the object, which is quite new. And I think that the best way to uh, epitomize that is to turn to an aphorism of Roland Barthes in the essay The Structuralist Activity on page 871, toward the bottom of the right-hand column, where Barthes says, Structural man takes the real, decomposes it, then recomposes it. This is the moment in which you can see the radical difference between what structuralism is doing and what formalism is doing. Formalism takes the object and it doesn't decompose it. It sees the object as it is, it just breaks it down into its respective functions, showing them dynamically in relationship with each other uh, and as a, a, as a system of dominance and subordination, uh, all of it understood as the way in which something is made, the way in which it is put together. But there's no question of, of, of anything other than the object. Gogol's overcoat, Cervantes' Don Quixote, Stern's Christian Shandy – these are objects and there's no question of somehow or another creating a virtual object, for example, the novel, uh, out of one's remarks about individual text. In a way, though, that's what, as you can see again from Levi-Strauss's analysis of the Oedipus myth, that's what structuralism is doing. As Barth says, structural man takes the real, decomposes it, then recomposes it. 
So what he means by that is you take a bunch of variants, versions, you take a bunch of data, not necessarily all the data, but a representative amount of the data relevant to any given idea or concept. And then you say, well, what are the – and this is where he, he, he gets into the idea of this is where he gets into the idea of gross constituent units. What are the basic constituent units of all of these items of data? Oh yeah, I see we can put them into a pattern. We'll, we'll work on this a little bit in a minute. Uh, yeah, I see how this is working. As a matter of fact, there is a kind of virtual object that I can begin to observe as I organize the data that I garner from all the individual entities or versions that, 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 that fall under this umbrella. And that's the recomposition, not of any particular object, but of a kind of virtual object which begins to emerge from one's in analysis. In the case of Levi-Strauss's text, the meaning of the Oedipus myth. That's the virtual object that structuralist analysis arrives at by arranging, analyzing, and classifying the data that it can get from all the available versions of the Oedipus myth. So structuralism decomposes, but not just for the sake of seeing how something works, like taking apart the, 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 the parts of an engine. Not just to see how something works, but in order to lend the parts to an analysis of a, of, of a body of materials that makes it possible to recompose all those parts in a new virtual object. That's what's going on in uh, what Barth calls the structuralist activity. So quickly, let's take a look at the Levi-Strauss uh, chart, if you want to call it that, of the Oedipus myth, which is on page 864 in your text, and just say a word or two about it. He takes a lot of versions. Let's not trouble ourselves with how many. He doesn't have nearly as many versions, by the way, as he would have if he were studying uh, a North American Indian myth uh, uh, or, a, or the sorts of myths that he did study in a variety of versions as an anthropologist, but he has some versions. One of them, by the way, Freud's version. Uh, one of them, Sophocles' version, uh, and a variety of versions uh, besides those. And he says, hmm, you know, as you look at these various versions, you can see that certain things are basically happening and they fall into certain discrete categories. We can put them in columns, that is to say, in terms of the way in which they share a common theme, but we can also put those columns in a row so that we can, ana so that we can analyze the way in which the columns relate to each other. For example, there's a group of events, happenstances, uh, sort of at naming accidents and so on that falls into a, common, a, a column called overdetermination of blood relations. 
Uh, that is to say, when, um, when Antigone tries to bury her brother and goes to the wall for that in ways that you might find excessive, that's an over-determination of blood relations. Uh, then, and then you notice that at the same time there's a series of actions in the myths going all the way back to Oedipus's family history and then down through uh, the history of his offspring and so on, that there's also a series of actions which have to do with the undervaluation of blood relations. You know, people, well, they don't really seem to care as much about <laughs> blood relations as they should uh, and as a result of that uh, bad things happen too. And then there's a, and, and then there's a column of, of issues which have to do with the way in which recurrently in all the versions of the myth there seems to be a strange preoccupation with that which is born from the earth. Monsters, uh, um, you know, the teeth of monsters that are scattered and become the alphabet uh, in the story of Cadmus, and uh, the variety of ways in which heroes have to confront monsters as Oedipus confronts the, the Sphinx. And all of these monsters are, are understood as not being born from parents, as being born from two things, but instead as emerging from the earth. They are phonic or autochthonous in Levi-Strauss's word. And there seems to be a strange preoccupation with, the aut with autochthony in this myth. But this is, but, but, but this is offset by the way in which, uh, by, by, the, by the way in which, um, uh, that is to say, with fending off autochthony, as if the crucial thing were to insist on the binary parental relationship that produces us, to be reassured in our humanity by the idea that one of us is born from two. But then on the other hand, there are all kinds of things in the myth which are also preoccupied with, auto with autochthony in precisely the opposite way. Uh, lambda, uh, the word that begins so many of the names of the figures in Oedipus's genealogy, Labdacus, Laius, and so on, Lambda looks like a limping person. Right? Oedipus means swellfoot, one who limps. Uh, and what emerges in the fourth column is the idea uh, that there are signs of autochthony in our own makeup. The reason we limp is that we have a foot of clay, that something of the earth from which we were born sticks to us. And this is a recurrent pattern, a recurrent idea in the unfolding of the Oedipus myth. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a peculiar thing, but notice that this is one of those occasions on which the myth explodes into other cultures. Adam means red clay. Adam is born from the earth in the sense that red clay is taken from the earth and he is created. And there seems to be the same preoccupation with autochthony in the Oedipus myth as well, one of the interesting links of that myth with uh, the Christian myth of the origin of man. So you got four columns, overvaluation of blood relations, undervaluation of blood relations, denial of autochthony, persistence of autochthony. Right? I'm going to leave it at that for now because we'll come back later to see what interesting thing is going on in the way in which these four columns are all about two versus one, that is to say, whether or not uh, we are born from two 
or born from one. And I want to come back to that, to, to that in the context of showing that in a certain way, the question whether things come from two, ideas for example come from two, two different things, or whether ideas come from one object, is after all this question is itself an allegory of the structuralist activity. That's what structuralism itself is about and that's what makes it so interesting and even perhaps peculiar that Levi-Strauss is able to, to, to find not just any thought <laughs> in a myth but the very thinking that he himself is doing about the myth. So, and that, of course, may have something to do with your sense that surely decomposing in order to recompose, creating a virtual systemic object – notice that I've made this a dotted line – creating a virtual systemic object, um, that there's a kind of a circularity in that. You know, you look at – I mean, I, I hope I've explained uh, uh, Levi-Strauss's four columns intelligibly. But if you look at those four columns, you say to yourself, how on earth did he come up with that? You know, and he himself says, oh, well, maybe it, I could have done it some other way. You know, you know, and, uh, and, you, and you say to yourself, <coughs> how can this become decisive? How can it become authoritative? Right? Um, you can see what he's doing, and by the way, you can confirm it by thinking of things that he leaves out. Uh, Jocasta hangs herself. He doesn't mention that. It's not in any of the four columns. But obviously, that has something to do. You can take your choice either between the overdetermination or underdetermination of blood relations. She feels guilty because she committed incest. Right? Oedipus, uh, at his birth, is hamstrung and exposed on Mount Kitheron. Levi-Strauss doesn't mention that either, but obviously that's why Oedipus limps. Oedipus is a limping person like the letter lambda. Right? And so plainly that must have something to do with the persistence of autochthony. And finally, if you read the Oedipus and Colonus, you know that at the end of it, Oedipus, when he dies, is swallowed up by the earth. Dust thou art, to dust thou shalt return. The, this, the, the, the equivalent of this in the Oedipus myth is that where I came from, the earth is where I will go. And he becomes a kind of uh, genius of the place at Colonus as a result of having been swallowed up there. He becomes a kind of uh, a presiding uh, spirit or genius of the place. So all of those things which we ourselves thought of, uh, he didn't think of them, he didn't, put them in, he didn't put them in his diagram, can, however, be put in his diagram. And if that's the case, we have to say to ourselves, hmm, there might be something in this. Maybe, maybe this is a plausible and interesting way of arranging these materials. So I really do think uh, that ought to be said in defense of what may seem, uh, however, to be a somewhat arbitrary exercise. Now, turning to Jakobsen. You may say, with all this emphasis I've been throwing on decomposing in order to recompose, that you don't see that going on in what Jakobsen is saying. You, you may say to yourself, well, he seems to be just doing formalism. You know, he breaks, he, he breaks any speech act into, its, into six functions. He talks about the interdeterminacy of those six functions uh, with a certain result. That sounds just like formalism, you say. Well, um, one way to show the way in which what Jakobson is doing is structuralist is to say that, after all, in this essay, 
Uh, there's a lot more of the essay, by the way, which your editor doesn't give you. It's mostly about versification, which is uh, the long-standing specialty of Jakobson's work, Russian versification, Czech versification, and so on, um, and a little technical. Uh, but it is all about the poetic function. After all, this essay is about the poetic function, what the formalists would call literariness. But Jakobson has a real contribution to make to this notion of the poetic function, and what it is is basically this. The poetic function, and I'm going to quote this for the first time, it's on page 858 in the left-hand column, the, and it's a mouthful. The poetic function projects the principle of equivalence from the axis of selection to the axis of combination. Now you understand. The poetic function projects the principle of equivalence from the axis of selection to the axis of combination. What is the principle of equivalence? You got that? You've got a good deal of it. The, the principle of equivalence can be understood as what Jakobson in the aphasia essay calls metaphor. That is to say, the way in which – you remember last time I talked about how signs cluster on the in the vertical axis, it, if we understand language as a system, there are some signs that relate to other signs in ways that they probably don't relate to yet other signs. And then I had an incredible lapse of memory. I couldn't remember a synonym for ship, but I still hope that I got. I still got. I hope that I got my point across to you uh, and indicated that there are varieties of ways in which any given sign cluster with other signs. Those ways of clustering are what Jakobson calls the principle of equivalence. What is it? Well, it's a, the way in which signs either are similar to each other or are dissimilar to each other. If that sounds too vague, maybe it's better not to use language of difference or similarity but actually to use language of opposition. In other words, the way in which signs are virtually synonymous or the way in which signs are really and truly opposed to each other. Obviously it stretches, uh, at just as in versification. You don't just have full rhyme, you have slant rhyme. These relationships stretch in, 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 the, in, a, in varieties of ways of this kind. But the principle of, a, of, of equivalence is the way in which signs uh, understood as phonemes, lexemes, tagmemes, however you want to understand them, the way in which signs are similar or dissimilar. They, the, the, the readiness with which we combine signs of that kind is what a person attending to the poetic function looks for. If the utterance seems to involve a predominance of equivalences of various kinds, then this utterance, which is unfolding on the axis of combination, right, is the result of having projected that principle of equivalence, call it metaphor, call it a principle of similarity or dissimilarity, to, from the axis of selection, that is to say that axis, perhaps a virtual one, in which language is a system, to the axis of combination. That real axis, because nobody doubts the existence of speech, that real axis in which language is not a system but has become speech unfolding in time. The principle of the poetic function, however, can be understood then 
as the metaphorization of what is otherwise metonymic. In other words, if I put together a sentence, what I'm doing is I'm putting words next to each other. And that's what metonymy is. Metonymy is, the, is, is, is the, a selection of signs, if you will, uh, that go appropriately next to each other according to the rules of grammar and syntax, according to the rules of logic. Right? Uh, but also, perhaps, uh, in the ways in which the, ret the rhetorical device of metonymy can be understood. Um, if I say, I mean, if, if I say uh, hot instead of house, I'm using an example actually taken from Jacobson's aphasia essay. If I say hot instead of house, and if I say the hut is small, um, there is a metonymic relationship implied with uh, houses, uh, shacks, uh, mansions, uh, other sorts of of edifice, but which can only really be resolved perhaps by the unfolding of the logic of the sentence uh, as in when I say the hut is small. Um, and so combinatory processes, borrowing the rhetorical term metonymy as that which is next to each other, are basically metonymic. The Available signs to be selected, on the other hand, on the axis of selection, are selected for certain purposes if they are metaphoric. Obviously, if I'm just making a sentence, I'm not selecting signs because they're metaphoric. I'm selected because they, I select them because they go easily next to each other, either for reasons of grammar or syntax or logic. Now let's look at Jacobson's six functions taken all together. I think this is by no means difficult, and I think that Jacobson's analysis of the six functions is just absolutely, totally brilliant. In fact, I think, I think that I mean, I'm so profoundly convinced by what Jacobson says about these six functions that I really think there's, there isn't much else to say <laughs> about an utterance. I, obviously, in different registers, there's lots to say. Uh, but um, in the spirit of Jacobsonian analysis, there's, there's really there's no possible you can complaint you can make about this except possibly one, which I probably won't get to until next time. But in the meantime, it's just staggeringly effective. And let me use the example of a word uh, of, a, of an expression which is surely as uninteresting. Uh, I've groped as, 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 as much as I could to find the most uninteresting possible expression to show the way in which any utterance whatsoever Ha entails these six functions. It is raining. Oh boy, excitement reigns, as they say. So in any case, um, let's, say, let's say that I am an addresser. I, that is to say, I, I'm a romantic poet. And I say, I, probably ill-advisedly if I'm a poet, but I'm a romantic poet, and I say, you know, sort of waking everybody up when I say it, it is raining. Oh. All right, what do I mean? <laughs> What do I mean if I'm a romantic poet? I, I, what, I'm, what, what I mean to say is I'm singing in the rain, or it's raining in my heart. In other words, I'm expressing, I'm expressing something emotional in saying it is raining. So that sense of the expression it is raining is what Jacobson calls the emotive function. Now, I'm being addressed. The thrust of the message is toward the addressee. It's being spoken by an addresser, but it's aimed at an addressee. 
That addressee is a small child going out the door without his coat on. And his mother or father says, it is raining, right? which means, of course, as a conative function, as a command, as something which has a design on the addressee, what it means is, put your coat on. But you don't necessarily say, put your coat on, you say, it is raining. And that's the conative function, that's the s what Jacobson calls the set to the addressee, that is to say, the basic dominant bearing that the message has, the set, is a set to the addressee. Now, there's a context for any utterance. This much, I suppose, none of us would think to disagree with. I'm a weatherman, I'm a meteorologist, right? I don't even have to look out the window. I look at my charts and I, and I announce uh, confidently through the microphone, it is raining. Right? And uh, everybody takes me seriously. I mean, it's, it, it, the referential function of it is raining is supposed to convey information. I'm a weatherman, I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about. So if, somebody, so if a weatherman tells me it is raining, I believe that it is raining, uh, I put my hand out the door and sure enough it is raining and the referential function, the dominant in the expression it is raining uh, as referential function uh, has been confirmed. I don't expect the weatherman to be, set to, 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 to be telling me somehow secretly that he's crying when he says it is raining, <laughs> right? right? I expect, him, I expect him to tell me the truth about the weather, right? And that's what, and that, and that's what I'm listening to him for. <laughs> All right. Now, the set to the contact, Jacobson gives you as those wonderful examples from uh, Dorothy Parker's representation of a date. Just, oh boy. Well, here we are. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> yeah, we sure are here. Uh, and so on, right? Um, in other words, in a state of abject and acute nervousness, filling the air with words, right? So that, so that you know, you're on a date, right? And you can't think of anything to say. <laughs> I, I really feel sorry for you. Uh, the <laughs> you're, you're, you're on a date, and you can't think of anything to say, so you say, it is raining. And of course, your interlocutor says, yeah, it's raining. And, and you say, it's, it's raining hard, you know? And, well, yeah, maybe it'll stop soon. And so, you know, and so the conversation continues. And that's the phatic function, checking to make sure the contact is working, testing one, two, three, can you hear me? That's what the set to the contact is. Anything that confirms that you're actually sort of in communication with somebody. And anything we can say has that component. I mean, if I'm a physicist and I'm going out on a date with another physicist, I say EMC equals MC squared, you know. And I'm not saying E equals MC squared, I'm filling the air with words. And, and uh, so once again, it's the set to the contact. And any message in the right context has that function. The set to the code is when we're not sure that we share, adequately share the code with another person on a given occasion, so that we back away from simply saying things to make sure that what we're saying is clear, in other words, to define them. I say there's a mare in the field, somebody says, what is a mare? Well, it's a female horse. Well, it's a female horse is 
the metalingual function. But we're talking about it is raining. This is where it really gets interesting. <laughs> the most interesting thing about it is raining in terms of these six functions is metalingual because what on earth is it? Right? You, somebody tells me it is raining. I say, what? What are you talking about? What is it? I don't, I have absolutely no idea what you're saying. I've noticed that other languages have this same weird phenomenon. E pleur, s regnant. What on earth does any of that mean? What is il? What is s? What is it? Is it God? Is it Jupiter Pluvius? Is it the cloud canopy? Well, it sort of is the cloud canopy, but that's, that, that's sort of clearly not what's meant by it, right? It is a kind of grammatical and syntactical anomaly <laughs> which is extremely difficult even for, ling for, for linguists to analyze and to explain. And that so that when I try to say it is raining, I can expect the metalingual, if, if I'm talking to a literalist of course, I can expect the metalingual function to kick in and in fact bite me in the shin. Uh, it is, it is, it, it, it's no picnic with the metalingual function in mind saying, it is raining. What kind of a definition of it is, it's raining? <laughs> you know? And so, and so uh, problems arise, but they're interesting problems and they are a function, one of the six functions of the expression, it is raining. Poetic function is unfortunately not very interesting. That's the one, that's the one drawback of this example, but there's still plenty to say. I, I, and the I in raining, which one can hear, the double I in raining. Uh, the, uh, the monosyllables um, suggesting, you know, sort of a kind of a quick declaration of something, followed by a, a sense of duration that one always feels when one is aware of rain coming down, it is raining, so that, the, uh, so, so that the duration or prolongation of the word has a kind of semantic value indicating to us that this is something ongoing. Uh, in other words, a variety, of, a variety of ways in which the poetic function of it is raining can be considered. For the poetic function to be dominant, um, as I suggested when I said a romantic poet wouldn't be very smart if he or she said it was raining, for the, for the poetic function to be dominant uh, would really uh, be taxing uh, for anyone who wanted to make it so. But it could be. Any function could be the dominant in a certain situation of any given utterance. And so, uh, the, so, so, so that then um, sort of perhaps to suffice uh, as an analysis of, uh, of uh, Jakobson's understanding of the structure of an utterance. And it has a structure insofar, that is to say a metaphoric as opposed to a metonymic structure, insofar as we observe the presence of some kind of pressure from the axis of selection, the principle of equivalence and the axis of selection, bringing itself to bear on the way in which the combination takes place. It's just incredible that, you know, you say it is raining. What could be more prosaic than it is raining? And all of a sudden you notice that string of eyes, you notice all kinds of other things about it. I mean, it is, it is the, the, the way in which the most banal utterance is combined is likely in one form or another almost unavoidable. I suppose I should use the strong argument and say unavoidably is likely unavoidably to entail 
aspects of the poetic function. Where the poetic function is dominant, you have literariness, and that, of course, is the old object of scientific attention of the Russian formalists. But it is refined in a way that I think is structuralist by Jakobson because he, ins he insists on the binary nature of the process of combining elements from the axis of selection if they are equivalent. Binary being same opposite, similar dissimilar, and the variety of patterns in which uh, those relations, same opposite, similar dissimilar, can be launched uh, into use. Now. <coughs> I've actually reached the point at which, uh, act th at which possibly I could um, get involved uh, in some elements of critique, uh, and I suppose I'll begin. I may not finish, but we can always carry over in, into the next lecture. So since we've been talking about Jakobson, let me call your attention to one problem in what seems to me otherwise to be a truly remarkable exercise of thought. And that problem arises on page 858, and he himself recognizes that it's a problem. He acknowledges it's a problem, but he, he wants to say that he's solved it in saying what he says. It's about, it's it's, it's about two-thirds of the way down the page, and it's about the relationship between the poetic function and the metalingual function, between the set to the message and the set to the code, as he puts it. And this is what he said. It may be objected, and here we are, objecting, right? It may be objected that meta-language also makes a sequential use of equivalent units when combining synonymic expressions into an equational sentence. A equals A. Mare is the female of the horse. Poetry and meta-language, however, are in dia diametrical opposition to each other. They're not the same, right? They're in diametrical opposition to each other. In meta-language, the sequence is used to build an equation. In other words, to prove that two things are that 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 one that, that one term can be understood in terms of other terms. The sequence is used to build an equation. Whereas in poetry, the equation is used to build a sequence. Okay. Now, in one sense, this is true, obviously. Yes, that is, I, I know when I'm speaking meta-language, and I know when I'm speaking poetry. Maybe you know it too, but what Jakobsen has actually done is he's sort of exposed a structuralist nerve because he has appealed to intention. That is to say, he said, the metalingual expression has one intention, and the poetic expression has another intention. What does that mean? It has a genesis. It has an origin in an intending consciousness. Just as in traditions not structuralist, things have origins in prior causes and not in their structural relationship between two things. In other words, if structuralism is a critique of Genesis, as like 
as is the case with Edmund Leach's analysis of the biblical text, Genesis, as is the case uh, certainly with Levi-Strauss's understanding of the Oedipus myth from two and not from one. If structuralism is a critique of Genesis, what happens when you have to make a distinction between two entities in your system, the poetic function and the metalingual function, in terms of their genesis? That is to say, in terms of the intention that stands behind them. As I said, the example seems trivial because we're all more than prepared to agree with Jakobson that we know the difference when we see it between the metalingual and the poetic functions. But he's not actually saying we know the difference when we see it. Maybe it would have been better if he had said it. Well, anybody can see what's metalingual and what's poetic. Maybe, you know, maybe it would have been better if he had. What he says instead is metalingual is intended to do one thing, poetic is intended to do another thing. That, that opens, actually, a can of worms about all six functions. You know, I, I, I stand here in front of you and I say, it is raining. How do you know which, what I'm intending? Right? Whether I'm nervous and sort of, sort of just being phatic, whether I, uh, whether I am really unhappy or happy, you know, whether I think you're crazy, it is in fact raining outside and I don't see any coats, uh, whether I am actually uh, sort of just masquerading uh, as an English professor, I'm really a meteorologist. I mean, how, I mean you, 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 don't, you don't know any of these things. You have to infer an intention, all right? And if you infer an intention uh, in, order to make, in order to make these distinctions, um, how can the structuralist imperative of structure rather than genesis be preserved intact? How can we insist that we know negative things negatively and not positively if we have to infer a direct cause, a positive cause, in order to grasp distinctions even between the six functions. Now that's a rhetorical question with which I don't necessarily agree, uh, but it is a potential objection that, that, that you may wish to explore on your own. Now, the critique of Levi-Strauss I've already hinted at, uh, uh, but there's another aspect of it too. That I will defer until next time because you'll find that Derrida's that the essay of Derrida that you're reading uh, is largely about Levi-Strauss, so it will make a natural segue between what we're talking about today uh, and what we'll be talking about Thursday to return first to certain aspects of Levi-Strauss's argument and then, uh, and then get going uh, with what uh, Derrida is saying. Thank you. See you then. <coughs>